Uh, morning, everyone. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering to worship you, first through singing and then communion and now through the preaching of your word. Do thank you for this wonderful account and how much it looks forward to your son and his blood that covers us, spares us from the plague, as we just read, the sin and death that would be part of our futures if not for Christ's sacrifice. And so I pray, Lord, that he could be exalted during this time. I pray that all of the wonderful truths contained in these verses would be delivered to your people, that you would use this as a time to meet with them. I spend the week blessed by the knowledge that uh, you're sovereign over who's here each Sunday, and there's a message that you have for them, Lord. And so I pray that that's what you would bring to them this morning through me, and just use me as your vessel for you to meet with your people, and for Christ to be exalted in our midst. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, well, good to see all of you. The title of this morning's sermon is The Importance of the Blood of the Lamb. The Importance of the Blood of the Lamb. Charles Spurgeon said, Morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus Christ to keep you out of hell. Billy Graham said, Be assured that there is no sin you have ever committed that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse. So Charles Spurgeon and Billy Graham, they had high views of Jesus' blood, and by the end of this sermon, you too will have a high view of Jesus' blood. And if you already have a high view of it, then hopefully you will have an even higher view. So here's the background of this sermon. Sunday morning has been working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse, and I, we know that Jesus celebrated Passover with the disciples and then went out on Passover and then went out to be our Passover lamb, also crucified on Passover itself. So that's a question we'll resolve later, how he could celebrate Passover one day, be crucified on Passover the next day. But with that said, I wanted us to appreciate that Christ is our Passover lamb. And so when he entered Jerusalem, that corresponded with Nisan 10, or occurred on Nisan 10, or corresponded with Nisan 10 when the Jews would get their lambs for Passover. And the Nisan 14th, as William just read during the scripture reading, is when the lambs were sacrificed. And so for those days between the 10th and the 14th, with the 10th corresponding with the triumphal entry and the 14th corresponding with Christ's crucifixion, families had the lambs for those days and they examined them to ensure that they were without blemish. And I wanted us to recognize over these coming weeks uh, approaching the end of Jesus' life that he also faces a similar examination between Nisan 10 and Nisan 14, whether, and that was the point of last Sunday's sermon, whether through the interrogations and then particularly the trials. Well, as I was preparing those notes for last Sunday's sermon, I ended up having, probably not a surprise, more notes than I can fit in one sermon. And so we'll be back in Luke next Sunday, but this morning I want to um, preach the verse, the material that I couldn't fit into last Sunday's sermon. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And I want to begin by sharing three things that could not deliver the Israelites from Egypt, and then I'll share with you what did deliver them. So one more time, I want to share three things that could not deliver Israel from Egypt, and then share the one thing that did deliver them. And so the first thing that could not deliver Israel from Egypt was Moses. We like to say that Moses delivered Israel, and God did use him for that. But if you're familiar with Moses' attempts, you know how poorly it went for him when he tried to deliver them himself. Go ahead and turn to the left a few chapters to Exodus 5. Here's Moses' attempt to deliver his people from Egypt. 
Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So here's the context. The previous chapter, Moses has concluded his meeting with God at the burning bush. God has sent Moses to Egypt. He goes there with his brother Aaron. He meets with Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh to let the people go. Look at verse 6 to see how Pharaoh responded. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people, the Hebrews, straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. So the Jews are still expected to make the same number of bricks with less straw. You shall by no means reduce that number, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, and they say, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regards to lying words. So not only was Moses unable to deliver Israel from Egypt, he even made their bondage worse, right? And you can see how the people responded by going down to verse 20. They were not happy with Moses at this point, as you might expect. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the Israelites come out after Moses' attempt to deliver them. And what is their response to Moses? Basically, some deliverer you are, right? All you've done is make our situation worse. We still have to make the same number of bricks. Our, uh, the weight on us is heavier. We don't have any straw for it. I hope God punishes you, basically, for what you've done is what they said. So the first thing that couldn't deliver Israel was Moses. The second thing that couldn't deliver Israel was the first nine plagues. The first nine plagues didn't deliver Israel, or there wouldn't have been a tenth plague. Let me illustrate what I mean by asking you this. What did the first nine plagues actually accomplish for the Israelites? Nothing. They didn't accomplish anything. Or let me say it like this. Were the Israelites any less slaves after the nine plagues had been unleashed on Egypt? No. Had their bondage been improved whatsoever? Were they any less oppressed after those nine plagues were unleashed? No, not at all. So even though those were the most dramatic plagues that the world had ever known, they still did not change anything for the Israelites. They didn't deliver the Israelites any better than Moses delivered the Israelites. The third thing that could not deliver the Israelites was the Passover lamb itself. Now that can sound strange, but let me illustrate what I mean by showing you something in Exodus 12, 3 we looked at last week. So turn back to Exodus 12. Look at verse 3, Exodus 12, verse 3. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So this is Nisan 10, tenth day of the month, the day corresponding to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the day that the, that the Jews obtained lambs that they brought into their homes and then kept from the tenth day until the fourteenth day. Now, at any time during those days... Or at any time between the 10th day and the 4th day, was Israel delivered from Egypt? No. 
So to be perfectly clear, the Passover lamb did not deliver Israel from Egypt. They actually had that lamb for four or five days before they ended up being delivered from Egypt. So the lamb itself, while important, still did not deliver them. So when exactly was Israel delivered from Egypt? Well, if the answer to that question, look at verse 6. Maybe I should say what exactly delivered Israel from Egypt. Verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now the word blood, it's introduced there, and this is one of the themes of this passage. The word occurs six times in these verses, and it's this blood that delivered Israel. This brings us to lesson one. The blood of the lamb provided the deliverance. The blood of the lamb provided the deliverance. To see just how important this blood is, look at verse 13. So Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And notice this. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Go down to verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So not to sound overly simple, but twice we're told that God had to see this blood for the Israelites to be delivered. It was not enough to, let's say, see the lamb itself. And when God saw the blood, the Israelites were immediately delivered. And I want to show you just how immediate this deliverance was. Look how they had to eat the Passover meal in verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, this refers to the Passover meal, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the idea is the deliverance is going to happen so quickly or so suddenly that while the people were celebrating the Passover itself, they had to be eating in such a way that they could get up and leave in haste at any moment. That's how quick their deliverance was going to be after the lamb was killed or after the lamb's blood was shed. It was an immediate deliverance, an immediate redemption. Look at verse 31. Then he, this is Pharaoh, he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people. Both you and the people of Israel, go serve the Lord as you have said. Now this also looks to the suddenness of the deliverance that Pharaoh, if you noticed, did not even wait until morning to send Israel out. He called them, summoned Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night, and drove them out then. That is a quick deliverance. So I looked at these verses because I want you to notice this incredible contrast from before the blood's lamb, or the lamb's blood, excuse me, to after the lamb's blood. So you have before the lamb's blood, you've got Moses, you've got the nine plagues, you've even got the lamb itself that could not deliver Israel. The lamb's blood is shed, and then you've got deliverance, quick deliverance, sudden deliverance. As the verse would say, in haste, a very hasty deliverance. The most dramatic plagues in history, one of the greatest leaders in history in Moses, 
Even the Passover lamb itself could do nothing for the Israelites. But when the lamb's blood is shed, the Israelites are not only delivered, but even driven out. And I want to remind you of something I shared last week. This chapter, like many other chapters in the Old Testament, is primarily about what, or let's say whom. This is primarily about Christ. When you read Exodus 12, you're not primarily learning about Israel. You're primarily learning about Christ. If you were to read this chapter and you didn't see Christ in it, then you would be like the religious leaders in John 5, whom Jesus said, you read the scriptures because you think them you have eternal life, but they are, they are uh, those which testify of me. And so essentially to read this account and fail to see Christ in it would be failing to have eternal life. It would be failing to come to Christ. We don't read the scriptures to learn these wonderful accounts. We read the scriptures to learn what the wonderful accounts point to, which is Jesus. So the account is primarily about him, our Passover lamb, and the way that he delivers us from the enemies we face that are infinitely greater than Egypt, sin and death. Now I want to get back to Luke, so I can't show you all the typology, but there's one more detail I want you to see. After Israel's delivered, look at the riches they receive in verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked... So when the Israelites are leaving, they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing. Verse 36, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So not only were the Egyptians usher, Israelites ushered out of Egypt, they even plundered Egypt's wealth on the way out. But this is not primarily about Israel being given riches after they're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This looks forward to or prefigures the riches that we have in Christ after we are delivered or redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Listen to this, Ephesians 1.7. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So even the way Israel is delivered by the blood of the lamb and then given all of this physical wealth, prefigures or foreshadows spiritually the way that we are delivered by the blood of the lamb and then given considerable riches or wealth in Christ. So the lamb's life was important I'm not minimizing it. The lamb had to be unblemished. It had to be a male a year old. If it wasn't certain things, then it could not even serve as the Passover lamb. But can you see that no matter how important the lamb's life was, how much more important was its blood, or we could say how much more important was its death? We don't have a record of this happening. But I just want you to imagine something for a moment. Imagine there's a family that gets a lamb on the 10th day, like verse 3 describes. And imagine this lamb is unblemished and is of the sheep or the goats, is a male a year old, just like verse 5 describes. If this lamb isn't slaughtered, then how many people did this lamb save? None. It provided deliverance or redemption for no one. And so the point is, Jesus' life was important. He had to be spotless. 
He had to be a male. You could say he had to be a year old, not literally a year old, but he had to be in the prime of his youth to serve as our Passover lamb. But if Jesus's blood was not shed, then he couldn't save anyone. If Jesus stayed alive, he would not have helped anyone any more than any Passover lambs would have helped anyone if they remained alive. And so this is what I would say. I am thankful for Jesus's life. I am thankful for Jesus's teaching, his ministry, his example, the parables he taught, the wonderful accounts of him healing people. But even more than that, I am thankful for Jesus's death. I am thankful for the blood that he was willing to shed for me. If you understand the importance of Jesus's blood, then you understand why it is so unfortunate when you hear people come up short in what could even initially sound like a wonderful description of Christ. So, for example, someone's talking and they say, I love the way that Jesus lived. He was such a great miracle worker. I'm so blessed. When I read the accounts of him healing people, he helped so many. What about all those wonderful things he taught? We could spend days just looking at those different miracles. But if people stop there, or in other words, if there's no mention of the cross, if there's no mention of Jesus' death, then they have come up woefully short in their appreciation of him. It is not Jesus' teaching, it's not his miracles, it's not even his sinless, spotless, unblemished life that saves us. It is his death, it is his blood that was shed that does that. Take your mind to what we commonly call the Last Supper. As we talked about last week, Jesus celebrated Passover and then he went out to become our Passover lamb. Matthew 26, 27, Jesus took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink it, all of you, for what? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So at the Last Supper, we see Jesus talking about his blood, doing two incredibly critical or crucial things. First, he says that it was his blood that instituted the new covenant. And then he says that it's his blood that provides forgiveness of sins. Without his blood, you have no new covenant. Without his blood, you have no forgiveness of sins. Now, this is why, as wonderful as Jesus' life was, as much as I'm, it'll be a highlight of my life to have these years preaching through Luke's gospel, as much as I uh, love studying Christ's life and then the privilege of coming and sharing it with you on Lord's days like this, the rest of the New Testament places a very strong emphasis not on Jesus's life, but on his blood. Now, it's not to say that the rest of the New Testament doesn't mention Jesus's life or his sinlessness, because otherwise he couldn't accomplish substitutionary atonement for us. But the greater emphasis is on his blood. And perhaps you'll see that as you continue reading through the New Testament over the rest of your Christian life. Just a few verses. Romans 3.25, God put for Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Romans 5, 9, we have been justified by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Colossians 1, 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1, 5, Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. One verse that particularly spells it out and draws the connection to the Passover lamb is 1 Peter 1, 18. We were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, looking to the Passover lamb, without blemish or spot. One verse that really emphasizes how important Jesus' death is, 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Maybe you've heard this verse misinterpreted like I have. Sometimes people want to minimize the importance of learning God's word, or listening to sermons, or reading Christian books, or learning theology, and so they'll quote this verse and say, hey, look, Paul determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, and so what? So that's all I need to know. I mean, if it was good enough for Paul to know only Christ and him crucified, well, then I don't need to know any more than that. That's not what this verse is saying. Paul didn't preach this to create a bunch of lazy Christians that don't study the Bible or don't learn theology. So that begs the question, then, why did Paul write this? If that's not why he wrote it, then why did he write it? Well, it wasn't literal. Paul was using hyperbole for the same reasons that our Lord uses hyperbole throughout the Gospels, to drive a point home, to really emphasize something. And so when Paul, and if you're familiar with Paul's letters, you know Paul knew a lot more than Christ and him crucified. If you read just Paul's letters to the Corinthians, you see the amount of theology and doctrine that he was teaching them, trying to impart to them. And if you read, it's in 1 Corinthians 2, too. And if you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you know at least two things. First, Paul taught them lots of theology. And second, the Corinthians needed him to teach them lots of theology because of the number of problems they were having or how messed up they were for not knowing more theology. And so Paul wrote this to exaggerate, to make this point that Jesus' blood is that important. That's what this verse is about. He's emphasizing not that we don't need to know theology, but that, that Christ's blood is really that important. His death is that important. Now that we see how important Jesus' blood is, I want to show you something that must be done with it. Look at Exodus 12, 7. Exodus 12, 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, this account's pretty unique. I might be missing something, and you can send me a message if I am, but I don't know of other accounts, with the exception of priests occasionally sprinkling blood at certain services or sacrifices. Without exception, I don't know of other accounts where individuals were expected to do something like this with the blood. When animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament, they brought the animals to the priest. The priest was, priests in the Old Testament were essentially butchers. They handled the animal. They might give some of the animal, perhaps the meat, back to the worshiper. But we don't see anything else like this where there was this expectation that people were supposed to take the blood of the sacrificed animals and then do something with it. Can you think of, in fact, blood is generally regarded as a fairly taboo thing that people were not supposed to have much dealing with because it represented life, and life was left for God. 
So this is a very unique account in that people were supposed to take the blood of the lamb and then they were supposed to apply it above the door and then on the sides. Now, why is that? Why do we read about this unique situation happening here that we don't read about elsewhere? Well, there are a few possibilities. If you look at verse 23, it says, The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and notice this, when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Hence, the, someone just told me this last, last week. They said, I didn't know, and this is someone who'd been a Christian for some time, I didn't know Passover was called Passover because it referred to the destroyer passing over the homes of those that were covered by the blood of the lamb. So I felt even a few people other people didn't know that. That's why it's called Passover, because the destroyer passes over. But I want you to notice something here in verse 23. Toward the end of the verse, God says, he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is terrifying language. This would sound horrific if you were told this, if you learned that the destroyer could enter your home and then take your firstborn son from you. Because the destroyer is an angel, or would be a spirit, or would be, let's say, immaterial, the angel could pass through doors or walls like Christ did after he was resurrected. The angel did not have to go through the entrance of the house, but that's what we're told that he would do. So putting the blood over the door made this blood itself seem like a guardian or a defender against this destroyer entering your home. So if you were one of the Israelites during this first Passover, you would really feel like there was only one thing standing between you and this destroyer entering your home, and that is the blood of the Lamb. If you were one of the Israelites celebrating this first Passover, aware that this destroyer will enter your home and execute your firstborn son, you knew that there was only one thing that would protect you from that judgment, and that was the blood of the Lamb. So if you thought of people having this blood over their doors and then went around the side and you picture people entering through their door with that blood framing it, it really seemed like people were passing through that blood. It would make them feel like they were putting themselves under the protection of that blood when they passed through it or entered their homes. You might also notice where the blood went and where the blood didn't go. So we know the blood went on the top, went on the sides. Where did the blood not go? On the bottom or on the threshold. I could be wrong about this, but this is, there's a verse that came to mind. Or let me say it like this. Even the fact that the Israelites or any Egyptians who also wanted to be spared would not place the blood on the threshold of the door, I believe also prefigures or looks forward to the high view or value that Christ's blood has for us. Just listen to this verse, Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? And so the blood wasn't supposed to be applied to the bottom of the door so that people would not, as this verse says, trample it underfoot. Stepping on that blood would show, would profane it or show that it was unholy. Remember when God 
invites Moses to approach the bush, but not too far. He says, you're going to step on holy ground. Don't do that. Take off your shoes. And so to have the blood on the, on the threshold would be to profane it or to treat it as a common thing or allow it to be viewed as being unholy, which this verse forbids. Now, I want to share something that might seem obvious, but I believe has great application. And I want to share it by inviting you to imagine something. So imagine that you have a lamb without blemish, just like you're supposed to have. Imagine that you keep your lamb in your house. You get this lamb on the 10th day, and you keep this lamb in your house from the 10th until the 14th day, just like you're supposed to do. Imagine the lamb's a year old. Imagine it's without blemish. Imagine you sacrifice this lamb on the 14th day, just like it was supposed to be sacrificed. But then imagine that for whatever reason, you choose not to apply that lamb's blood. You don't do anything with the blood. The lamb is sacrificed, but you ignore the blood. Now, if the Lord passes over, he's not going to say, oh, I am so glad you have a lamb without blemish, and I'm so glad you kept it five days. It's wonderful you sacrificed it on the wrong day. So even though I don't see the blood over the door, I'm just going to move on to the next house. The truth is, if a family did not apply the blood, then they were not any better than a family who didn't have a lamb at all. And this looks forward to Jesus' sacrifice and brings us to lesson two. The blood of the lamb, lesson two, must be personally applied. The blood of the lamb must be personally applied. So hopefully you see the parallel for us. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that. That's not my inference of the verse. It says, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But it is not enough for us just that he is sacrificed. The blood of his sacrifice must be applied. Now, what does that mean? So it doesn't sound like just sort of esoteric language. It means that it's not enough just to have knowledge. It's not enough to simply recite the gospel well. It is not enough to be able to quote some verses. It's not enough to know different accounts in the scripture. It's not enough to be able to talk a lot about Jesus. For his blood to be personally applied, we must repent and believe. We must go further. That's why some people say 18 inches usually keeps people from salvation, right? The distance between the head knowledge and actually being saved or having a regenerated heart. And so it's not enough just to, just to have knowledge. And this has particular application for the children in our church. You hear the gospel regularly. You are growing up. I mean, if all the kids just give me their attention, you're growing up in Christian homes. You're hearing the gospel um, probably more times than you can count. You're incredibly familiar with what Jesus has done for you. But it's not enough just to know that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed his blood must be applied to our lives or it serves no benefit it does not save anyone without being applied if i use myself as an example i grew up i knew jesus was the son of god i would tell you that he lived a perfect life i would say that he died on a cross but i was not saved because jesus's sacrifice was not applied to me it was not personal for me i had not repented and believed i had not surrendered my life to christ I was still trusting in my own works, or righteousness, or religious activity. 
Listen to these verses. Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. That's very personal language. Why? Because God wants us to view Christ's sacrifice personally. It doesn't just say Christ died for sin or sins. He died for our sins. It is to be viewed very personally, intimately. Now, when we understand this, that he did this for me, he did this for Scott LaBier, he did this for my sins, when we understand this, then we're able to say what David said, Psalm 1846, let the God of my salvation be exalted. We can say what Isaiah said, Isaiah 61.10, my soul shall be joyful in my God. He clothed me with garments of salvation. He covered me with the robe of righteousness. We can say what Habakkuk said, Habakkuk 3.18, I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We can say what Paul said, Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. We can say what Mary said, Luke 1.47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Or Thomas, when he went from unbelief to belief, what did he say? My Lord, my God very personal when that sacrifice is applied suddenly it is about what jesus has done not for millions of people throughout human history you you're no longer just a number now jesus died for you he is your savior like thomas my lord my god look at exodus 8:22 so I can show you something else. Instead of telling you, I really want it spelled out. I want you to see it for yourself. I suspect you'll see where this is going before I make the point to you. So this is Exodus 8.22, the fourth plague, which is flies. On that day, I'll set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now, if you don't know, Goshen was the area of Egypt set apart for the Hebrews to live. And so there are going to be flies everywhere, but there's not going to be any flies in Goshen, it says. So Goshen has been set apart to be spared of this plague. Look at Exodus 9, 6. This is the fifth plague, livestock, diseased. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but notice this, not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. So livestock dying everywhere, huge loss, incredible gift to the Hebrews that none of their livestock die. All of the Israelites' livestock is spared. Look at Exodus 9.26, the seventh plague, hail. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So that'd be pretty incredible, wouldn't it? Terrible hail coming down, destroying all of the crops, all of the homes, probably injuring numerous people. None of the Israelites affected. No hail landing in Goshen. Look at Exodus 10.23, darkness, the ninth plague. 
They, now this is the Egyptians, did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But notice this, all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Again, darkness everywhere. Nobody can see anything. Can you imagine what that would be like? And we're not talking about the kind of darkness, you know, where you can still, the moon provides some light or your eyes adjust and then you can see. We're told this is a darkness you could feel. There was a thickness to it. It'd be like trying to wade through it. Darkness like that everywhere. You, you couldn't live. You couldn't function. But in Goshen, there's light. Everyone can see. So you get the point. The Israelites are God's people. Plagues don't affect them. The Egyptians get beaten up. The Israelites are safe and secure. Now here's the question. When the 10th plague is announced, because you know your Bibles and you're familiar with the first nine plagues, what's God going to say? I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike all the firstborn of the Egyptians, but I will not pass through the land of Goshen. I will not touch the firstborn of the children of Israel. That's what you'd expect. Look at Exodus 11:4 to see what God actually said. Moses said, thus says the Lord, so this is what God said, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl. Notice that. Who are the slave girls? Who are the slave girls? The Israelites. This is God's way of saying the Hebrew children are going to die as well. It says even if they're behind the hand mill, they're working, they're in slavery. All the first, and then it says the firstborn of the cattle. So God said all the firstborn sons are going to die. So you better be covered by the blood of the lamb. Even the firstborn of the cattle will die. And that's weird, isn't it? I mean, you can read that and be like, why would it say that the firstborn of the cattle that aren't covered by the blood of the lamb are going to die? Because we know, I'm not trying to make a joke, that cattle don't even have door frames that they can put blood on, right? So why say that the firstborn of the cattle are going to die? It's God's way of making it abundantly clear that everyone needs the blood of the lamb. That's the only reason it mentions the firstborn of the cattle dying. Because God is just trying to drive this point home of how necessary the blood of the lamb is for everyone, for everything. And this brings us to lesson three. The blood of the lamb is needed by everyone. Nobody escapes. Something else that's interesting about this just think about this for a moment. Not a trick question. Why was God unleashing the plagues on the Egyptians? Not a trick question. Why was God unleashing the plagues on the Egyptians? Did someone say to show his power? That's true. That wasn't the answer I was looking for, but you are correct about that. That's what Romans 9 says, so God could glorify himself. Practically, what was the reason? To get Israel released, right? So God is unleashing plagues on Egypt to get the Egyptians to release the Israelites. So my point is it makes sense that there would be no plagues unleashed on the Israelites because they did not have slaves to release. They were the slaves that needed to be released. So why would the Israelites be affected by the 10th plague? Because God wants to make it abundantly clear that whether 
Egyptian or Israelite, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, weak, powerful, intelligent, lowly, male, female, young, old, slave-free, you need the blood of the Lamb. That's the point he's making. Nobody can be spared without it. And if you put yourself in the place of the Israelites after the first nine plagues, how do you think you'd be feeling? I know how I'd be feeling. I'll tell you how I'd be feeling. I'd be feeling invincible. (laughs) If I was an Israelite after the first nine plagues, I'd be feeling great about myself. I would be loving watching the Egyptians get beat up over those 18 months while I'm safe and secure in Goshen, thrilled with the Egyptians getting what's due them. And then God showed them that they needed the blood of the lamb as much as anyone else, and that without it, they were going to face the same punishment as the Egyptians. And so if you make this really personal, I would say that it doesn't matter if you grow up in a Christian home or you grow up in a non-Christian home, you think you're a good person or you know that you're a bad person, your family's in ministry, your family's never served the Lord, you're famous or you're unknown, you're rich, poor, great, small, you need the blood of the Lamb. And I want to conclude with this. When you think about God commanding the people to offer a Passover lamb. He did that. Now, follow me on this. God commanded the people to offer a Passover lamb because he didn't want anyone to lose what? A firstborn son. God says, here's a sacrifice you can make. Here's what you can do so that you do not lose a firstborn son. It seems to me that God didn't want anyone to have to lose a firstborn son. You don't have to be a parent or even have a firstborn son to imagine how horrible it would be to lose a firstborn son, and God doesn't want this for anyone. So he gives them a way out. But what was God the Father willing to do for us? He was willing to give his firstborn son. So he commanded the people to do something that would allow them to be spared of the horrible thing that he himself was willing to go through for us. He was willing to sacrifice his firstborn son for me, for you. What God the Father did not want us to experience, he was willing to experience so that his son's blood, our Passover lamb's blood would be shed so we could be forgiven. If you have any questions about anything that I've preached in this sermon or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for Christ, our Passover lamb, that he was sacrificed, that his blood was shed, a blood that washes and cleanses us. But we see from this account and elsewhere in scripture that that blood must be applied. It's not enough for the lamb to be sacrificed. We must also do something with that blood. And I would pray for anyone here, Lord, who hasn't personally applied Christ's sacrifice. They have not been covered by the blood of the Lamb, that today would be that day of salvation for them. I think especially about any children who've heard the gospel, who know that Christ, their Passover, Christ the Passover Lamb has been sacrificed, 
but I pray that he would become their sacrifice and that his blood would be applied to their lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.